I was just thrown into it and I learned to trade by doing it. To tap into people's talent changes the world. Art changes the world. That's the bottom line. The answer a lot of times is less is more. And in fact, getting the audience's brains to engage so you, you create mystery and darkness. Hello, Theatre Art Life podcast listeners. Today we're sharing with you the audio from our one-on-one interview series. We hope that you enjoy listening. Some of our discussion has references to pictures shown in our webinar. So if you want to see these pictures, you can always head over to the Theatre Art Life YouTube channel and watch the replay. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Theatre Art Life discussion with the wonderful Mark Breckman. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. Good morning. I'm not sure what time it is in Hong Kong, Raven. <laughs> Super early. <laughs> it's all good. Got to get up to speak to some amazing people. So, I, I think, you know, let's start with the Empire State Building because I think it's such an amazing, iconic building, of course, not only in New York or America, but around the world. So, how did you get commissioned to, to work on that? Pretty much the same way I've gotten all my work throughout my life. And that was with um, and just a phone call out of the blue. I, I don't ever, I've never, every time I've tried to sell myself, it never works. So, I gave up a long time ago. And these phone calls just magically happened. So it was a magical phone call back in 2012. And it was from Ron Delsner, the promoter in New York, who does all the rock shows in New York. And uh, he just said to me that the owner of the Empire State Building had called him and they wanted to know who was the guy to get to to operate. Phillips had been working on, which is now Signify, had been working on the building for the last four years, trying to put an insul- installation in. Uh, they got to the finish line, which is actually operation, and they felt like they needed something else. Uh, they needed like a race car driver is what the owner called me. He just called me one day, and, and then I really didn't think I was going to get the job because I was in line with 60 of the top designers in New York or in America, maybe even the world. I never saw the whole list, but I knew there were 60 people in the competition. Wow. And, and everybody was, a, everyone was a heavyweight. And, and you know, my producer, Alicia Griega, I remember saying to her, I'm not going up against like Jules Fisher. And, and, and I mean, the companies were really pretty staggering. And mm. um, so they did it. They did the bid. It was Dietrich and, and, uh, and Alicia and, uh, and a few other members of my team. And then somehow we got into the top five. And I had no idea how we got there. And then we won. We won the competition. It was pretty amazing. And I used to go to New York with my parents when I was a kid. And so driving in on the turnpike, it was always such an amazing sight to see the building. Yeah. For me, it held special, like a really special meaning. That's amazing. So when you got the job, what was your approach? Like, obviously, you've only got so much you can do with a building, but then you've managed to be able to do quite a lot. So from a creative perspective, how did you start to think about that project as lighting such an iconic building? Well, the, the owner, Tony Malkin, is a visionary. He, he's, he's very, very clear in what he, would, he likes to see. And my team are visionaries. You know, everyone I work, we work together as a collaborative. 
I forget, I think it was Dietrich who came up with pixel mapping. Actually, and this is back in 2012, before it really had taken off a lot. It was around, but it really hadn't taken off yet to actually speak video speaking to lights. And that was actually how we won. I think that's how we won the bid. But we put that in the proposal. That's what we were going to do. But it would require them buying a whole new set of control systems because that Philips had put in just their standard, I forget what it's called, LME or LMI or whatever it's called. And I think that it was that it, it, starting at that point with using video to control the lights rather than actual so us trying to program red, blue, green, which is pretty much what they had been doing for years. I think, I think that was really the beginning. And what they wanted was they wanted music. They wanted to do these music shows over the iHeartRadio as a gift to New York City. And that's where it started with Alicia Keys. And that was Alicia Keys was the first one. It was two days after Thanksgiving. It was November 27th, I think, in 2012. But the, the best part about it is we're talking about creative. So you can do all the pre-visualization and the computers and it looks great. We weren't allowed to run any tests on the building because no one knew that he had installed a complete LED lighting system. And wow. the building had still being lit every night between, I think there were metal halide lamps, and then the LEDs were being replaced. So Phillips had to have matched the exact color of the metal halide so that when they were replacing them, no one would know that at nighttime, you know, those, those were LEDs. On the 27th, they were going to unveil it. So I wasn't allowed to have any dress rehearsal, look at the building, any of that. And that was really crazy. So finally, the night before Thanksgiving, they gave me one minute. I was allowed one minute on <laughs> one facial, the West facial. And the reason that they wouldn't let me have any rehearsal, all the news stations used the Empire State Building as their background. So at three or four in the morning, they're all getting prepared for the morning news shows. So I would have given it away. There are no cameras pointing that way, no news stations on the West. And we get, and that's 10 seconds for like six cues, and, you know, 10 seconds each, right? And we're getting ready yeah. to start. And suddenly I hear this marching band right below me. And it was, um, it was a Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade. That's there was a staging area right below the building that I was standing on. It was pretty crazy. That's amazing. Just for the people that don't may not sort of experience that, you know, I know that might be common in America. So people, it's advertised that people tune into the radio at iHeartRadio, and then the music is synced up to what the Empire State Building is playing in terms of lighting. Correct. Correct. And and since then we we've, we've developed our own app because the first time I went in into a meeting and it was 2012. And I said, so you're sending me a fiber optic line so we can sync, you know, somehow we're getting signal and it'll be time coding. So, and they went, no. And I went, and this is iHeartRadio. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they reached down and they put up a big boom box on the table, you know, and they said, you'll look just like everybody else. So since 2012, we've, at Tactical Manure, have developed an app so that it, you can listen to it latency free on your smart your devices so we've we've improved the fm signal that's amazing so tell us a little bit about tacman tactical maneuver i like the i like your short name for it and and your group of people that you've brought together in in, in this company 
I guess as you get older, you start really, you know, you, you don't really want to tour that much anymore. So somewhere around, it was probably around 206 or 207, I started moving into a more stable life. I had a daughter in 209, which made it even more stable staying at home. So, I, you know, Alicia Griego and, and Dietrich both have been working with me probably around 11 years now, 11, 12 years. They started around 207. I think Dietrich started in 207. Prior to that, I, I've always had some, like one person around or two people around. But this time I decided to make a business out of it, you know? And, and so that when I got really old, that they would t- all take care of me. <laughs> anyway, so we just started doing it and the Empire State Building came up. So there, that was a really stable anchor in terms of yeah. building a business. And, and so as we went on, there were more projects and we would expand and contract. Right now, we've been stable at about around five. And I call them collaborators. Um, they're not employees. They're, we're, we, we really do work as an artist collective. And, and you have to be a bit odd to hang out. Because first of all, we've never had an office. We've always worked remotely. So uh, we would meet in different places. So when the pandemic began, we felt right at home. So we do more than lighting. Like we just did on, on Halloween, we just, uh, Ian Shalansky, our, our, our programmer and, te- and just, you know, 20-something brainiac programmer, he, we created an app. And we used Simon, the old memory game. And we did that on the uh, Empire State Building in October. And we're going to continue doing it. We're partners with Hasbro and the building. So that's really exciting. So we keep trying to expand our, our reach and way to use, uh, to get back to the original question, that simple mm. installation. We keep trying to find new ways to get more creative out of it as the world becomes more technologically I guess, compliant or, you know, it just becomes, you know, in depth, you know, Mm. people are able to really access their own experiences rather than the ones we used to organize. So Mm. we try to answer tactical maneuver tries to really create an answer, you know, what's going on in the moment in in Mm. 2020. Yeah. Wow. And so if we reverse a little bit, I, I recall that you started very early in the lighting field by default, what was it, 16? Yeah, I was no, I was younger than that. I actually started building, I was doing light shows probably at around 14 or 15. So, yeah, it was 14 or 15. So tell us, how did you end up with your first gig in lighting? Because then your, your trajectory of your career really began from that point, right? It was a phone call. <laughs> it started that way. So I was, had this light show and I was, every weekend we do these, you know, they were like, you know, parties, basically. And I do light shows. And it, back then it was uh, 1967. So it was a bit psychedelic. And and so it was probably in 71 that um, my phone rang one day. My mo- I was still living with my parents. My mother answered it. And it was the local, it was a Philadelphia, um, the number one radio station in Philadelphia. And it was a programmer who hiring me to come down and do theatrical lighting, which I had never done at this it was a Johnny Mathis show that they had these radio shows every month. So I started doing Johnny Mathis count Basie through Gellington. Obviously I went and I rented a file spot and a couple of lights and I was doing theatrical lighting. I, I, I stopped doing psychedelic lighting and then went on to um, work for that lighting company where I, where I rented the file spot 
something happened six months in, and I ended up owning the company with this 63-year-old man who was this just genius, the filmmaker, animator. He was also responsible for uh, NFL films and the Steadicam. Parts of it were invented in my warehouse late at night when I was like 19 years old. And then I got into the um, theatrical union in Philadelphia because the company I now own supplied all the theaters in Philadelphia, supplied all the colleges in the tri-state area. So I was just thrown into it and I learned the trade by doing it. I was in, uh, you know, unloading trucks, driving trucks. And then one of my gigs was with Bruce Springsteen and I was a fan. So I was about 20 years old, 1920. And I knew all the music. So all the cues were perfect. I got hired that night to start doing Bruce Springsteen shows in the Philadelphia, Jersey area, New York. And from there, it just grew. I, I, I've never, you know, like I said earlier, it's just phone calls would happen. So yeah. I've been very lucky. I, I, I really have been lucky. I wouldn't advise this to a lot of people. You got, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not exactly the way to, to, to live a life, but I've been lucky. Yeah. But you've always been sort of continually employed in this industry since then, right? Well, as long as I want to be. There was times I wasn't employed because of my own destruction. Yeah, like every we all go through those periods. But if I wanted to be employed, yes, I would have been. I, I, and I have been gainfully employed for somewhere. It's probably close to 50 years now, which I don't even want to say that number. That's just too scary. <laughs> it makes me really uncomfortable I still feel like I'm 25 well I mean but 50 years in that career you know is there any standout projects for you that you felt like were the key ones where you got to be the most creative is there is there particular ones that spark your memory in that way I think you know, oh my my Springsteen history was great because it was just me and a console and 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 no one was telling me what to do and mm. there were no opinions and, and I really became, just like a musician does, and like people that are creative, I paint now, just like painters. You, you, zone, you get yourself in a zone, and, it, and it, it, it speaks to you. And you can't write it down. You can't give instructions about getting in the zone. It just happens. You have to be able to recognize it. You have to be able to recognize your opportunities. So in terms of what stands out, it's those gigs that, like the Empire State Building, they left me alone. Like, like that night on Thanksgiving, to me, I look back now and it was, I, it just made me dig deeper into solving and getting out what I saw in my head. And, you know, mm. even though they gave me a minute, I could do it in a minute. And I think all along the way, it's all about collaboration and about um, people, you, you feeling that what you're seeing and what you're communicating to not only your client, but to the audience. And the audience is really important that that's, you know, you're really comfortable in it. You're not nervous. You're not questioning yourself. You know, you're always going to question yourself a little bit, but just that idea that you're confident and you feel that around you, that the people around you you're collaborating with also believe in you. And then you, you form a unit. It comes like, I've had many families over the years. I think those mm. are my best experiences. You know, the actual shows are great, but that's only usually, what, an hour, two hours out of your day? And you do all this work just for the hour or two hours, and then the rest of the time you're waiting around. 
I'm going to ask you about the Olympics because you've not only just done theatrical stuff and concerts, you also worked on the Olympics. Was this another phone call? Were you called up for this one? It was a gentleman by the name of Pepo Sol. And Pepo Sol, he's, he's no longer with us. He was an amazing Spaniard from Barcelona. And he called me up one day and said, you know, I am the executive producer of the, you know, the big voice, the big, just that incredible tone. And he said to me, I have a list here. He told me who he was producing the opening closing ceremonies in Barcelona in 92. And he says, I have a list. He starts naming off like Bob Dickinson. And, and he says, in the, next to their name, it says safe, safe, safe. He says, then I come to your name, Mark Brickman. And he says, I see risk. And he says, would you come to Barcelona? And I went, oh, absolutely. So I went and didn't come home for 14 months. It really was amazing. That was amazing. I, there, I was surrounded, but, you know, I was just thrown into the Spanish culture and history. And even though I, and I, and I had some, some, I'd been there one or two times prior to that with Springsteen in the early 80s, just as Franco had fallen. So they had come out of, you know, that really, that regime of, of um, really oppression. So when they got the Olympics, it was a really big deal for them. So what I did there was the first time I walked into that stadium that we're looking at, I said to him, because I'd been there for about, you know, maybe six hours. <laughs> and I, but I, I felt their energy. And I just said, we, we shouldn't turn off, turn on the stadium lights. Because up until then, all these opening ceremonies always had stadium lights on. And I think anybody knows that that just, you can't do anything with that. Mm. And so they agreed to that. They saw the vision. We did, we got Ari to make moving yokes and scrolling colors because back then big 5Ks and 10Ks and, you know, I think they even did it for a 20K. They didn't have movement to them. So we lined, we, we basically just redid it. I mean, and, and that really set the stage for all the spectacles that we now see at the events because up until then, really, it was always just, you know, they'd have these opening ceremonies and they would be very, you know, staking lights. It would be like marching band. So yeah. That was, it was really amazing time, Barcelona. And the people and the food, everything, the wine, it was great. Oh, they know how to do, enjoy themselves. Really, really full life. I think the best part, best way, just again, I think this can, really quick story, but I think it can really encapsulate what I was saying earlier, was that the night before we opened, there's 114 cameras in the stadium. I walk in the stadium. They had gotten me an apartment right on the beach outside Barcelona. And I and back then, we didn't really have cell phones. You were given a call time. I didn't really look at my call sheet. I just thought, I just show up. I get there. <laughs> nobody's there. There's nobody in the stadium except for my Spanish counterpart, Tomas Lavel. And he's there, and he's hunched over the desk doing some paperwork. I'm like, where is everybody? He goes, oh, he goes, you know, the next two weeks, we won't be home with our families. We won't be able to eat with them. So we took the night off. And I went, but tomorrow, you know, anywhere else in the world, you you know, it's a dress rehearsal, right? Not in Spain. <laughs> and and, and it, it was absolutely brilliant. And I said, you mean we're going live, live? And he went, see. Sí. Yes, we are. I'm leaving now. I'm going to see my family. And he got up and he left. And I, I tell you, the next night was amazing. It was amazing because 
and NBC, all the technicians from America, they were really freaked out because yeah. some of them were really happy and understood the spirit, but a lot of people weren't happy at all. <laughs> it's all about the yeah. energy and they were confident. You know, that, that's what it's all about. And I think it's it's fascinating you say that because really when you go into those parts of the world, you, you've got to immerse yourself into that culture and go with that flow, right? You can't necessarily bring the ways that you do things in your own country to that place. You've got to go, okay, well, this is the way it is here and, and work with that. Well, it's like jet lag. You know, when you fly, I always land. And, you know, if I've come from LA to London, you know, and it's, it's the morning or the afternoon or something, I'd stay awake until, you know, mm. my normal bedtime. Otherwise, you'll never you'll never be okay for your trip. Your whole trip, you'll be awake. Like you know, going to Australia is the hardest. Yes, <laughs> I want to ask you about this this picture because I I love this picture. Can you tell me what this project was and explain this? It was Roger Waters tour, and it was in um, I think it was two hundred eight, two hundred seven, and so now look, you know, obviously it's Pink Floyd, and I had hadn't seen Roger in since they broke up. So they broke up in uh, 87, 86. Uh, last time I saw Roger was probably had been 82. So, and then, you know, I went with Gilmore and Roger was over there with, you know, his crew and tour. And then somewhere in, in 207, 208, Gilmore was out on the road. It must have been 206. And Gilmore was out. And we both, both camps ended up at Bray Studios outside of London, rehearsing for their tours. And I was walking along the footpath and I saw Roger. I hadn't seen him in 25 years. And he, you know, we both hugged each other. It was like a really big deal. And he brought me into his rehearsal studio, showed me what he was doing. Within three weeks, I was back working with him again, which was really, <laughs> it was fantastic. It really was. And we got really creative. And we started the tour uh, and he said to me one one afternoon, he said, I'd really like to do, I've always wanted to do, you know, the Dark Side of the Moon album cover. And, and, and we've tried to build it a number of different ways, but it never, it just very clunky, doesn't look right. And so I basically, in my head, knew it had to be lasers. So I created the chandelier. And it's obviously you can't see the actual chandelier, but all, there's five lasers in there self-contained. Chris Nyfield, George Dodworth from, um, I can't remember the name of his company out of Pittsburgh, but um, th those were my collaborators back then on putting this together. And Eric Pierce from Showrig Building, who's a genius. We love Eric Pierce. We took it out on the road and there's Dark Side of the Moon and it rotated. So it rotated around um, the audience. And wow. you're not allowed to scan the audience, but I've done it a number of times. But there's a guy in Texas called Walt Meter, and he, back in the 60s, got a, a variance from, I guess, Food and Drug Administration here in America, where we were allowed to scan the audience. So he had to sit at, out at the mix in front of the house every night, and we had to pay him just because he happened to have this piece of paper that allowed us to do that. Wow. It worked. Was the parameters that that suddenly became allowable? Like, was it, did it because it was quick, or like, what, what, like, what, what gave you that tick of approval to let you do that? Well, so you have to scan. The scan rate has to be at a certain frequency, and his 
variance was based on putting a laser into a spinning mirror ball. So they used the same idea that this is really no different. So we got the technical part right, but then the variance being that no one ever took it back from them. So it was it was legal. It was no different than the same scan rate if you were scanning a mirror ball. Right. And he used to do that in the 70s, I guess, 60s, 70s. Wonderful. Do you find that in your career you're always trying to push outside those boundaries in terms of challenging what light can do and how, how that works? All the time. I hate repeating myself, so I try not to. And then sometimes I'll go in meetings and people put their inspirational pages in front of me, you know, down on the table, and they'll start showing me other people's work or other things. But you can see that it was inspired by something that I probably have done. And 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 and, and I that's always a problem for me. I, you know, it, it, I'm not that it's not an egomaniacal statement I'm trying to make. It's just that the way my brain works, I I'm always exploring new ways of doing things. And I mean, now mm. technology and with everything that's out there with disguise and, you know, it's amazing, and, and, you know, all the different tools that are, that we have at our disposal. And I'm talking about everything, automation. I haven't seen anything though that I'm like going, wow, I'm seeing just retreads of what, is acceptable within the boundaries that somebody made. I'm not seeing any like with a lot of these, a lot of shows that I, I watch. I'm, I'm not seeing that. Oh my God, they completely reinvented it, which is what I'm waiting for. I hope I see that before I die. It feels to me there's so, it's just like with music, there's so many creative people out there and there's so many tools out there. And to tap into people's talent changes the world, art mm. changes the world. That's the bottom line. And um, I just see a lot of fear of doing things and line items and, pe- you know, the, 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 I don't want to say corporate, but I guess the business part of the business always seems to get in the way. Yeah. So what you, I guess you're recommending that lighting designers really cultivate that creative approach and, and, and explore those boundaries, I guess. I think all of it, it's a collaborative effort. I think that they have to, because they, why is it still on a proscenium stage? One dude, DJ, on a proscenium stage, 40 by 60. It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense. You must have your creative process, but aside from, you know, knowing what technology can do and what's available to you, that's not the only thing that would obviously feed your creative inspiration. So is there, how do you how do you go through a creative process? Are you looking? Is it always associated with the industry? Is it some? Is it stuff you read? Is it stuff you see in art? Like, where do you kind of draw those inspirations for your creations? That's an interesting question. I, I would think it, it, it's always what the project is, and whether it's a music or it's film, and then ultimately, you know, listening to all the creatives, or, or if it's if if I have free run, you know, then I have to really. But it's always about the audience, ultimately. But it, the audience is the client. It could be the directors, the actors in a film, you know, and, and everyone else, set designers, everyone else. In a music project, obviously, these days it's really different because I don't think, I think the old classic guys that I'm all friends with, they still have control over their shows. I think the newer acts now are really prepackaged and already done and just handed to these people, except for maybe a Beyonce. But she, her focus is even more about bigger and better and stuff you know and i'm always like that's not necessarily the answer mm. i mean the answer isn't always 
The answer a lot of times is less is more. And in fact, getting the audience's brains to engage so that you, you create mystery and darkness. Mm. And because your brain's going to find the mystery to be intriguing because it's not all overexposed like our daily life. Our daily life now is no longer exciting because when these technologies first came to us, you know, the way we got information, it was a novelty. Mm. It's not an, it's now our daily life. So yeah. guess what? Mystery. So it's, it's the great circle, right? It's come back again. So the darkness and the mystery is really what I would strive for. That's my biggest inspiration. Yeah. It's creating mm. the unknown. It's funny because the project I'm working on at the moment, we were like, let's go back to the old parkins. And then the, the AV company's like, we don't have any, anything but LED anymore. Like, come on, surely at the back of your warehouse, you've got some parkins. And they're like, no. But it, that then becomes the novelty using that older equipment, you know, and we were looking for that look and feel. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think so. If, if everybody's going in that direction, creativity means taking that sharp left turn or right turn and going in another direction to, yeah. to, to, to change the audience's expectations. Go back to candles then. They can't find the bar cans. <laughs> I know. I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> you should get Chip Monk. You know, he's in Australia. You should get him to do one of these webinars. I mean, he's the god of all gods of our business, you know, at least the rock and roll touring business. And, you know, he's just such a, and he's got to be getting close to 80 now, you know. Wow. Just amazing, amazing human being. I wanted to ask you about your work with Eminem. So what did you do with Eminem and, and, and what was that project? I never got to meet him. It was no. wild. I, I no. <laughs> but he doesn't even know that that you know that I got but but anyway it was another one of those Empire State Building gigs and I for years wanted to do something and they would do these shows and then they started doing these kind of I don't know, record release things and so they put Taylor Swift at the iHeart roof downtown New York they put the cameras so you would see one or two shots of the building but you'd be really focused on her and her stage show. And I never understood what's the, what's the, why am we doing this? What's the reason? It has nothing to do with anything. You know, you, mm. you don't know that we have just spent five days programming the building. I mean, so I started this campaign to bring the acts to the building, which was not really met with a lot of enthusiasm. And, and so no. I kept it in my mind. <laughs> And finally, I, I got to the place where I wanted, they, I had, they had taken me up to the 103, the floor of 103, where it's like a, it's, it's outside of the building and there's a little walkway and it's probably, you know, maybe tw 24 inches, 30 inches, you know, wall to wall, tiny little walkway around the top at a, a 1,200 feet in the air. Well, 1,100 and something. I wanted to put somebody up there. You know, that was my main goal. But I would say I'd be satisfied with just taking over the observatory where they had the <laughs> stairs coming down and getting Taylor Swift to do a video with her on top of the observatory. You know, let mm. her do a record lunch there and put the band on, inside. And I saw a whole other way of staging it. Right. No, no enthusiasm because it would have been and get helicopters to shoot it. You know, they'd be like, where are you going to put the cameras? We'll use helicopters. You know, mm. why not? I mean, I mean so it's money, big deal. You guys spend money on anyway. So I don't, I don't even. I'm friends with the executive producer Jimmy Kimmel show, a talk show. 
over here in mm -hmm. America. And yeah. he does these, and they do the Empire State Building every year. So we started talking. I told him the idea of putting somebody on the top. And we tried doing it two years in a row. And then this third, the third year up, we, we're still talking about it. And I guess we were trying for Lady Gaga, but she was busy with her uh, Stars Born. So she passed. And then they handed me a list. And the list was Cardi B and, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, the popular singers at the time. Jay-Z and Beyonce, but I couldn't see them doing that, you know, because it's it just, and then there was a the name Eminem, and I went, and he just released his album, and I thought to myself, he he really will know what to do up there, because mm. that's the ultimate, and I won't use the word, but, you know, middle finger kind of to the world. I mean, he's that, he's, he's perfect. He's mm. the guy. So we told them that that's who we wanted, and they were up for it and the rest is kind of history. But what it did was it allowed us to use the building in a way that nobody's ever done before. We put them outside in the 90th floor, which is, I guess there's a shot of that. I know we, there's a video, but you can find it online. But you see them just out there with the helicopter circling. It was just fantastic. Yeah. We did get them up on 103 to, to, end, to end the piece. And it worked really well. Real, but I never met them. And it was great. We we had fun. We created all kinds of pandemonium in New York that on social media while we were shooting the hill two helicopters, four hours circling the building. So they mm. they were going, it's a terrorist attack. It's you know, the aliens are invading New York. They've taken control of the Empire State. It was fan and that was actually what I wanted to do it live, live. And the TV people can't do that. They don't right. have the capacity to go live live. So they waited a week. So by the time they got, everyone knew what was going on. But if he, had, if he had played live, live, it would have gone viral. It would have gotten into probably 100 million hits. When you can do that element of surprise, it's always a, a, a great moment, right? Exactly. Exactly. Have you ever worked with any drone stuff? Yes, I, I have. We had permission last year for um, 300 drones to fly in New York City. For the opening of the Kosciusko Bridge, it was for the city and for Governor Cuomo. And we—I don't think we gave you that previs, but we actually have a previs of the drones flying in, and then they get over the bridge and they're doing their dance, and then they go, "I love New York," you know that famous logo. They mm. spell it out, and so we had permission for the whole month of September because we were also there was a Billy Joel component involved. I don't know. Something happened and the governor needed to change it to the end of August. And we couldn't, it would, we only had two weeks to go. We couldn't go back to the FAA and the authorities. So we, we, we didn't, but we had programmed it and it, it was going to be fun. And these drones were, I forget the name of the company, Nils from Whole Hog, the guy that invented all bullet boards, Nils. He now has a drone company. He also was, uh, he had that LED company back in the 2000s out of Texas. It was called, sorry, I can't remember, but those white two, Versitudes. He also, I mean, Nils is incredibly genius boy. And um, so now he's got a drone company. So That's my thing. we spent a lot of time working on that. It didn't happen. Oh, Verge Arrow. Thank you, Alicia. Verge Arrow is what they're called. 
Ah, amazing, amazing. So um, we've just got a few minutes left. So if anyone wants to ask any questions, I'm going to keep speaking and asking questions to Mark because we could speak here for hours. But if anybody has particular questions they'd like to ask him about his experience, please put it in the question in the chat box and, and we'll try to answer your question. So, Mark, in terms of your the highlights of your career, there's probably been so many it's too, too much to count. But is there one that really sticks out for you that you sort of want to say is one of your most favourite groundbreaking projects or something where you really broke the mould? I don't. I, I, that's really hard because, but Empire State Building, like on a personal level, because it's and it continues. M- most of the work we all do is really ephemeral, so mm. it's not like you can keep going back and seeing it. It's not like a painting where you can go visit it in a museum or someone's home um, or your own home. But Empire State Building has continued now as an installation, you know, for eight years. So mm. I, I I like that one because it. I can I can see it and visit it, kind of touch it and feel it. So that that that's meant a lot to me. That's meant yeah. a lot to me. Um, yeah, it still does. I think there's something uh, uh, interesting and amazing though about the impermanence of of the projects and, and and gigs that we do, really though, because that's what makes them special. That's why my favorite, my hero, and I was telling you earlier before we got on, my hero is Christo, because Christo's mm. artworks throughout the years have are the ultimate ephemeral you know not they're just gone they're there for two weeks and they're gone and they're massive projects massive all self-funded no sponsors he's in complete control he just passed away i'm still sad yeah always looking this is one of his but i yeah that's his and i guess they're getting ready to do he was his next project before he passed away was wrapping the arc de triomphe in in paris I think it was supposed to open in September. I don't think it happened, but it's going to happen soon. And that's, it'll be, you know, in remembrance, really. Sorry, I just wanted to check with you. So he he had planned the Arc de Triomphe thing, and and even though he's passed away, they're going to deliver that project with his vision already. Absolutely. Yeah, he he started working on that in, I think, the 70s with his wife and partner, and, and she passed away about eight years ago. But he kept working. They had... It, it, it would take him sometimes up to 25 years to, to, to realize a project. So I can relate. I can relate to that. I have things that I'm working on that they're bordering on 25 years. And tell us what, what was this project? Yeah, it was called the floating piers, but you was, you could walk on water. So, and, and it's a big lake near Bergamo in Italy. And you, you know, he just, it's a massive project. I mean, if you see some aerial shots of it, I mean, it's just like he took over this lake and had thousands of people walking on water for two weeks. And that was it. Like but the, the build, what it took to build and float that the walkway was just amazing. It was it's a, there's a great film on Netflix about it, actually. I don't remember the name, but you can search Christo. And I think it's I think it's Netflix. It could be it's one or Amazon Prime. What's one of those? Peter says we, we must ask you about your artworks. My artworks? Yeah. My paintings? Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. There's some back here. There are just There's a couple back here. You can kind of see a little bit. They're just the like, back. I'll go that way. And what do you use? Do you paint, you paint? What sort of paint that you use? I use everything. Of course you do. <laughs> I, use 
is that a, I guess that's a good creative outlet for you, Mark, to to do that. Especially maybe in lockdown, you can you can do a lot of paintings in your studio. My wife got me into painting in 2002, and when we had first met, see she saw how nuts I was. So I think she suggested that I start picking. I started with the soft pastels. And mm-hmm. then we, I moved to New York about a year, not even a year, six months after we met, I moved to New York and lived downtown. And just so happened, just like those phone calls, I, I found a, um, I found a 1970s era, 3000 square foot painter's loft in New York, moved in there for the next five years um, with, with my wife. We lived there and it was mm-hmm. at Mulberry and Grand. So I had my little stint of being the, bohemian new york painter for a while that's amazing does it It feed your lighting design work it's informed you know the lighting design for me is so much easier than painting painting light is so hard and to get it right is something that you know it you have to work every day eight hours a day to really and i wonder if you ever achieve it so at somewhere while you're doing the process you, you have to decide where you want to go, you know, what path. I mean, mm. I don't rule it out. I, I look at it, but my, my, just everything about my painting and my drawing has evolved over the last, you know, 18 years. So, but I do have 300 paintings. I don't know what, it'll probably be on one of those shows where they, 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 they cut open the warehouse because it hasn't been paid, you know, the storage unit with storage wars or something, you know, and, and someone will <laughs> bid on all the, you know, and that's where we'll end up. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! But you know, it's a it's it's a wonderful creative outlet. It's it's a good thing to do to art to it do is. art and painting. So it's a it's a great thing. And so, what's what's on the current plate of of Tacman projects at the moment? Is there anything you're currently working on? Well, I got one of those nail biters right now that's been going off for six months. Knock on wood, we we've, we've been really really lucky. We feel horrible what's happened to the industry i've been trying relentlessly for years to bring something to the world it would really be timely now for everyone that is out of work it it would be a way to get away from the way it's always done which isn't going to bring us back to working full stop for a number of years it's another it's again using how creative we are. Our industry is the most creative people in the world, given what we've done. If you look at our history of what we've built, what we've moved around, how we influenced the world over these all these years, you know. And 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 I and to me, I look out and what I see are people forming this, you know, like committees and things like that, or trying to get the government to, to fund initiate initiatives. But really, it we need to get back to. I think the way we all think, which is creatively, there's some solutions. So Tacman, we're we're involved. I'm right at the finish line. It might it's tomorrow morning. It's either going to go away or I'm going to be successful and be able to bring something to the world, which then I can share with everybody, and it'll employ people and it'll employ them locally, and it'll it'll be, you know, it's not going to be the 120 trucks that rolling down the road with you know the hundred thousand people at the but it'll be live entertainment in a safe environment number one not only for the workers but for the audience done in a way 
where if you scale it properly with all the technology, there'll be you won't come out of it as a billionaire, but everyone can make a living, with, mm. including the entertainers. And I think that that's the most important thing we do right now. We we look at our circumstances in the moment rather than wanting to go back to you know the, I call it the before times. I don't know when that's going to come back. So yeah. that's that's one of the things we really are working on right now. We have some other initiatives at the Empire State Building, some new things with live entertainment, which actually speaks to what I was just referring to. And I'll, I don't know. People ask me that all the time, and then I'll say, I'll say a couple of things, and I'll go, I don't know. If Alicia was on the call, she could help out a lot better because she's <laughs> an incredible producer um, who, who just keeps it together all day long. You know, yeah. and knows where we're going. So watch this space for Tuckman because there may be stuff coming down the line if it happens, yeah? Yeah, let's do one of those big mind meld kind of energy things, right? Yeah, and it's just wonderful, like you said, I think during this time using that creativity to to work through this time is one of the most important things. Mark, I want to thank you so much for spending an hour with me and us at Theatre Art Life talking about your working career. Thank you. Your knowledge and uh, everything has been absolutely amazing for sharing. I wish you the best for your future projects and uh, thank you. All right, be safe. Will do. We'll keep in touch. Bye. Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharotta, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world.